We are back. Guess what we're doing? We are talking to Bob Ney, our expert on all things Washington, D.C. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. I don't know if I'm an expert. I've just been around a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no person better to... uh, to celebrate, I guess, the upcoming Iowa caucuses. Oh, my heavens, I didn't know that they were coming up this fast. And uh, as they do, I see that Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are starting to take off the gloves in a, oh, I don't know, in a moderate kind of way on against uh, the Republican le- uh, 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 leading contender, Donald Jay Trump, what's going on in the Republican side? Well, they are. And the Iowa caucus is a different type of animal. It's not like you know a lot of states where you go to vote, you walk in, you cast a vote with you know either political party or however you're going to cast it in your state. These are caucuses that are designed to have to, you know, literally move people from one group across the room and say, hey, come over here to our group. And then you have an open discussion on who you're voting for. So, you know, who you're supporting. So it's a very interesting process. And of course, the candidates know that. So this is why this is kind of a high stakes thing. And uh, you've got Haley and DeSantis, and that's all you're seeing mentioned here. And uh, that's because, you know, yeah, I know Chris Christie's there and Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, but these two are still at the top of the food chain, you know, right after Trump. So they did. They took some some gloves off uh, in the next you know, 10 days. The caucus is coming up. So both of them, in fact, did it. Now, I'll be curious to see what Trump <laughs> answers back with, you know. But uh, Haley was saying that she warns that chaos follows Trump. That's what she was, you know, basically uh, saying. And then DeSantis honed in on the fact that Trump has flip-flopped on abortion and criticized Trump as not pro-life, which is very interesting. Um, and, and I will share with you uh, real quick, if I could, Kevin, when I was at the National Convention in 2016, I covered both of them. I was sitting with uh, two people from Ohio. We were in the in the back up the top press section. We could see Trump standing down there ready to deliver his speech, you know. And when Trump got to the LGBTQ statement he made, the two people with me turned in shock and said, I can't believe he actually said that, you know, that he was supporting LGBTQ rights. And I said to them, the guy's from New York. (laughs) And if you look at Trump's history, Kevin, there's going to be times when these candidates like DeSantis can come out and say, well, wait a minute. Here's what he said years back, or here's what he did. Trump morphed when he became president into a more, quote, conservative president. We were interrupted. We were talking about uh, the Iowa caucuses and Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, and you were giving us the, the, uh, the, the, the book on how the Iowa caucuses actually work. Right. And then uh, what happened, uh, of course, because, you know, the caucuses are very fascinating how they work. People are standing in rooms. You've got to take them from one group to the other to get them to support your point of view, et cetera. And they discuss and debate issues. So Haley and DeSantis are, you know, ginning it up, let's say, for this uh, Iowa caucus. Uh, Haley is hitting uh, Trump and saying there's, you know, chaos follows him wherever he's at. And then DeSantis honed in more on Trump is, quote, a liberal, basically, on abortion 
and uh, you know also uh, you know a couple of other issues. And I was just relating when when the the internet broke there. Uh, I had went to 2016 to the Republican National Convention and the Democrat Convention, and I was sitting with two people. We were in the press section looking at Trump beginning to give his speech to accept. And at that time, he mentioned LGBTQ rights. And the two people with me turned in shock and said, I I didn't know he supported those. And I said, listen, he's from New York. Uh, He's running for president. And there's a lot of things that Trump is going to change his opinion on. And it's happened with Trump. And, uh, you know, he's morphing on abortion and guns and things like that. So he became more conservative as president. And now, of course, DeSantis is trying to hit him that he, quote, is a liberal true at heart. Yeah. So, uh, Bob, I hate to go back a thousand years, but you opened the door to 2016. Uh, I want to go back to the Obama. Oh, boy, let's see. 2008 election in which Mm -hmm. this always this never ceases to amaze me that the Obama people understood that winning the Democratic nomination was about delegates. It wasn't about votes. It was about and it wasn't about states. It was about the number of delegates that it took to get the nomination. And the Hillary Clinton people seemed to not really understand that. Does do the DeSantis and Haley people, not to mention the Trump people, understand the mechanics? Do they have the the best staffers in the Republican Party that can that can sort of help them navigate their path to the nomination? Well, you know, I would say yes, but but I'm going to go to 2016. I'm going to go with um, uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Yeah, uh, Bernie right. Sanders has been, you know, Bernie's been around a long time, and of course, so has Hillary. And the Democrat National Committee was there, and I think it was Wasserman Schultz was head of it. And there was no question in my mind that the Democrat National Committee was screwing Bernie Sanders over. No, no doubt right. about it. All right. And then all of a sudden, and it amazed me at the time, people were saying superdelegates as if they were in shock over them. Kevin, in in 1976, I was a superdelegate for Gerald yeah. Ford, okay? <laughs> I was appointed right. – yeah, I'm just going to say I was appointed by the governor. So you, you have superdelegates. And so to answer your question, yes, they're aware of it, but I don't know if they can play it like Obama played it. You know, we'll have to see. So they've got the experts, but is, are they going to do the footwork to try to, I guess, manipulate that system? Bob, is Trump uh, vulnerable here or, or or are we just dealing with a, a media, CNN and media that that wants to have a horse race? Is this thing locked up? You never know. And and I'll go back to a theory that I have that you can call me ridiculous. Plenty of friends of mine have. But, you know, it is still possible with the situation of the president, his polling, uh, you know, some of the falls he's had. I I don't want to speak ill of the president, but some of the falls he's had, uh, you know, if he has a fall, if he has a Mitch McConnell moment, you know, where you stare into space, et cetera the poll numbers can drop more, and then it will be very evident that Donald Trump is going to beat him. Now, if Biden, for some particular reason, before this summer, pulls out of this race, 
which a lot of Democrats want him to, but nobody wants to talk about it publicly except a few. But if he pulls out of this race, he takes Harris with him, obviously. And then it's a new ball game. And I would predict to you, whoever is alive in the Republican nomination process, like Nikki Haley or DeSantis, could very potentially then actually beat Trump because the polling numbers with a new candidate against Trump is not going to be what a Trump-Biden race is. And I don't know if this makes sense, but really only Trump can beat Biden and only Biden can beat Trump. You put new names in there, changes the entire equation. So I think Haley and Ramaswamy and Chris Christie and DeSantis are all hanging in there, not to wait and see if you know, Trump, you know, something happens with Trump or the president, but I think they're hanging in there because there's just there's too many moving pieces in this entire thing, including Trump's, you know, legal problems. So they're not going to beat him, but you know, you have to see are these going to be the actual nominees, meaning Trump and Biden. Oh, that's you know, you really put your finger on something. It's you're right. Nobody wants to talk about uh, Biden's age, uh, but but everyone's talking about it uh, in Washington and elsewhere. And uh, you're right. Anything could happen. And uh, boy, we're just going to have to wait to see. It's uh, have you ever seen this, Bob, this kind of this age, you know, age of an incumbent versus criminal indictments of a, a former incumbent? No, I, I've been involved. I'm I'm 69 years old. I started in politics at 18. I have worked every level of campaigns from the president you know, down to a township trustee. And I have never in my life have seen the dynamics that you have right now with Donald Trump and Joe Biden, their situations, you know, throw in a war overseas. I mean, you get all these, like I call them moving pieces. And since 2016, if you and I would have sat down and went to HBO and said, we're going to write a script about Donald Trump, <laughs> and if we went to him, they would have thrown us out of, you know, out of their office and would have said, yeah. you guys are making this up. What This has been surreal, honestly, since 2016 in this country. It's just the strangest political process, and it's not going to end. This is far from over with this year coming up. So, yes, to answer your question – uh, it, it is becoming so hard to predict the next step uh, in this process. Who would think we would be where we're at? Uh, Bob, I hate to even raise this, but a, a new batch of documents have been released in the court case around uh, the notorious sex abuser Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, lots of lots of excitement again in the media about. You know, uh, Bill Clinton was there and and, uh, Uh Bill Gates was there and, you know, British royal family, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Is is this any of this matter or is it just People magazine stuff? Uh, Most of it does not matter. The only one that's had a uh, a court type of settlement was Prince Andrew. The other thing about this is uh, we have to keep in mind these are people who have lawsuits and and people who were deposed by the you know court process, and they would say things like, "I heard Bill Clinton this, and I heard Donald Trump that." So it's not necessarily anything so far. It's salacious. It's political spicy, I guess you'd call it. 
but nothing so far is really criminal in nature. And people could argue, well, Epstein flew the jet to Mar-a-Lago. Well, Bill Clinton had 50 times that he was named in this. But at the end here, I don't think it's it's much. But I will throw this out for you, for you and your listeners to to Google, <laughs> because most people I don't think have understood this. There's something behind all of this in the sense that how Epstein was allowed to continue, because if you go back to 1981, when he found his consulting firm, he had an Austrian passport with a fake name, and he was listed as a Saudi Arabian. All right. How do you do that and not, you know, first of all, be arrested with the false name and listing your residence in Saudi Arabia? And then he was uh, he had a client named Adnan Khashoggi, and I used to live in Saudi Arabia, famous name. Uh, he's the arms dealer of Saudi Arabia, and he transferred Khashoggi, transferred weapons from Israel to Iran as part of the Iran-Contra affair. Epstein also had access to military bases in Israel and defense um, installations there. Now, here's the kicker of all of it. Alexander Acosta... And if nobody knows that name, his recent position was the um, Secretary of Labor for Donald Trump. But he was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Florida. He did a sweetheart deal, I'll call it, with Dershowitz, who was Epstein's lawyer. And they did a, a basically, you know, let this guy go, Epstein, on these sex charges. And here's what Acosta, the Trump <laughs> former cabinet member, said, quote, I'm going to quote, I was told Epstein belonged to the intelligence sources and to leave it alone. Now, think about that. How on earth, you know, could this happen? What was Epstein's worldwide connections in the intel community and with all these famous people? You know, how did he achieve all this? I think, if anything, you know, with these documents coming out, people ought to start asking those questions. Yeah, boy. Nothing, nothing uh, hurts the public's faith. You know, we talk about these, the faith in government institutions, uh, you know, being so eroded now. Uh, you know, you can blame a lot of causes, but boy, nothing erodes people's faith in government more than that. Uh, you know, secret sweetheart deals with a sex abuser like Jeffrey Epstein. Right. Uh, yes. And I, somebody's got, I would somebody's like got to somebody to call. I would like somebody to call. You know, uh, they ought to call Acosta in and say, who told you he was an intel source? Why did, you know, Kevin, why does the government not conclude <laughs> with the right questions they're supposed to ask, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob, tomorrow is the three-year anniversary of the Capitol Hill riot uh, and the attempted uh, coup over and, and getting rid of the 2020 election uh 1,200 people have been charged. Uh, it's still going on. 730 people have pled guilty to, to charges. Uh, the pipe bomber who put the pipe bomb outside the DNC and the RNC is still not has not been brought to justice. Um, what are we to think about uh, on this anniversary? Well, the president is going to give a talk tomorrow, and he's going to say that democracy is at risk. And this was Trump. You know, of course, Trump, if I was Trump's lawyers, I would say be very careful what you what you say tomorrow, you know, because he's up for charges on the January 6th uh, you know, affair. So 
But the president's going to come out and do that. I think Trump will probably respond by saying democracy's at risk, the border. You know, millions of people are coming across the border. Terrorists are coming across the border. Our economy is collapsing. So I think Trump will probably more than defend January the 6th. He'll say something. I think he'll come back at Biden over that. And then the two of them will finish and that'll be over with to another anniversary. Yeah. OK. Um, OK. And lastly, uh, Israel, there's so much going on in that war. Israel is changing its tactics. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken is going back there. Uh, I must say, I, I'm in the middle of a book about the uh, Jim, President Jimmy Carter, Menachem Begin, and Anwar Sadat mm-hmm. sitting uh, around Camp David trying to make a deal there, which they did. Boy, what what a fascinating history. Uh, what's the latest? In we've got this Islamic State. Uh, and two explosions in Iran that killed 100 people. How do we make sense of what's going on? Well, the way I describe it, we have gasoline all over the Mideast, and somebody's got a match in their hand. And that's a problem because now Hezbollah, when the Israelis did the assassination of the of the leader in Lebanon. Uh, now, that drags Hezbollah, the terrorist group, uh, basically into this. We have the proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia and Yemen. That's the Houthi that you hear about. Uh, they're attacking ships in the Red Sea. We're over there to you know defend that area of the world. The Strait of Hormuz, which is in the Persian Gulf, of course, is a I think, what, three-mile wide, a very small area. Iran had a bombing, which ISIS uh, took credit for that. And by the way, I did want to point out, there's been a misnomer since the Bush administration that somehow Iran is close to al-Qaeda and ISIS, and they aren't. So ISIS has done that bombing in Iran because they are a Sunni group. They are against the Shiite the other sect of Islam, they're against the Shiites. That's how that happens. So you've got you know, quite a powder keg, and now Israel's talking about uh, yesterday how it's going to settle afterwards with Gaza and how it'll be run. And then the other minister under Netanyahu came out today and disagreed with the first minister about Gaza. So, you know, you've got all of this uncertainty over there, and I think it's going to be really important that uh, – United States be very, very careful. Uh, are we going to assume this as our war, and are we going to be in conflicts in Syria and Iraq over this? So, it uh, it's a tricky situation for the the U.S. and I think something they need to be very, very cautious about. And if we get into a full scale um, conflict over there, I think it will be uh, not only you know, difficult, of course, for us as Americans and our men and women in uniform, but it's going to be a nightmare for the president. Yes, and I I noticed that as as Israel talks about changing its tactics in the war on Hamas, that they are looking ahead to some sort of uh, uh, governing body in in Gaza controlled by Israel, but. But they want the United States to be a key player in overseeing Gaza. Is that right. I, I'm yes. talk about a match. Oh yes, and I mean that in itself. Because look, we are you know 
the Bernie Sanders, and I, and I, I like to quote Bernie on this. Bernie Sanders' statement is, you know, I'm Jewish and I want to uh, have some language in the appropriations for Israel because he was making it clear he's not to anti-Jewish, but there is a difference of, of this, you know, the state of Israel versus Judaism. And um, he was talking about language he wanted in the Senate, which would have humanitarian type of ideas in it. Okay. President Biden now has twice said, no, this is an emergency and I'm going to bypass the Congress. So, you know, there was no chance for Sanders and others to put language in. So, President Biden is, you know, kind of inching towards, you know, calling the shots on this. And with us overseeing Gaza, I I can't imagine what kind of nightmare that would uh, we would have opinions. But I can't imagine what kind of nightmare that would take us into. Yeah. And, and you know, Biden is as a former chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, this stuff is sort of in his bones. Uh, It's almost like he's a like he's a coach wanting to get in the game. Yes. Uh, but I bet he's got Jake Sullivan and others advising him that this is a bad idea. Don't do this. He has splits in his administration over this issue, and 17 anonymous campaign staffers wrote a letter criticizing him, believe it or not, for his position on this because they are you know, pro-Palestinian. So he's got splits in his own administration. A couple people have resigned uh, but you make a great point, which nobody has raised. Uh, when I served with him, he he's a foreign policy guy. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Iowa caucuses, Israel, Hamas, we got a lot coming. And Bob Day, as always, every Friday, we'd love to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. And we are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. And to wrap up the last section of Vermont Viewpoint for the week, we have a, a, an exciting new guest uh, and something of a of a sneak preview. Esther Charleston is a first-generation Haitian-American, a co-chair of the Vermont Commission on Women, a former dean of climate and culture at Middlebury Union Middle School with a couple of master's degrees, and she is the founder and CEO of Conversation Compass, which focuses on justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and education. And later today, she is announcing her candidacy for governor. Esther Charlson, welcome to the show. It is an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. When this came across my uh, my inbox that you were announcing today, I wanted to be the first to get you on the radio and ask you why you're doing this. So why would any self-respecting uh, human being want to put them through, put themselves through a, a campaign for governor? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. Honestly, I moved here five years ago and wanted to be a part of the shift. I made this place home. I have two beautiful children. And as I think about the Vermont 20 years from now, I'm having a hard time picturing it. And I knew sitting on the sidelines is not the way to be a part of the shift or to solve the problem, but to engage and be active. And I felt like, and I feel like, being governor would help move us towards that goal. Okay, so let's 
get into your bio a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get here? You say you moved here and you live in Middlebury and you've got a family. What uh, what brought you to Vermont? Why 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 here? And how did you get here? Yes. So I had an interview with Middlebury College and honestly, I didn't even consider Vermont, but they paid well and I was like, okay, let me try it. But when I came to visit I visited Middlebury and I was just looking outside and thought about my family and where we want to be a few years from now and my children. I felt like Vermont is a place where children can be children longer. I can have and create that life for them. So I was like, okay, why don't I start here? And I said, yes, got the job, moved here and started a new life. Wow. And and so at, I believe, 1 o'clock today, you're announcing a campaign for governor. Is that right? Where are you going to do that? I am. I'm going to do that on the front steps of the State House in Mount Pillar. And I'm really excited. Um, okay. So what distinguishes you? What qualifies you? Uh, you know, tell us about your resume and tell us what you bring to uh, – the office in terms of being governor uh, if you get elected? Absolutely. So I have done things from higher education. I spent a lot of time in higher education, Um, public school. I've been on several boards. I was elected and ran for the select board in Middlebury. Twice had to step down because I couldn't find housing, so I'm all too familiar with um, that being an issue here in Vermont. And I, in that um, in that work, I have created environments where I get to see people, hear people, work together, and collaborate to help us get to the common goal. And that's what I see the governor's job is to help folks get there, um, encouraging folks, but not only that, creating a path and working with um, our legislators to help create the Vermont we want. And so I do that, especially in the work that I do with my company. I sit and have hard conversations and help folks work through the hard stuff and bring them to the other side. And so that's what I hope to do with our state. What, uh, What's your evaluation of I, I pointed out earlier in the show today that the that Governor Scott has now been in that state house since two thousand and one, more than twenty years, and he's been governor uh for quite some time. Um give us your evaluation of Phil Scott, if you would. When I think of Vermont, I don't have a clear picture of where we're going and where we'll be 20 years from now. And some of the things that I'm seeing that we're all experiencing when I think about floods, um, of course, they're going to keep coming. Our workforce, a lot of folks are going to be retiring who are going to come in. And when I think about housing, as I've experienced, um, what it's like when you don't have a place, and I'm so grateful for community. When I ask myself those questions and think about, okay, how are we 
moving towards a Vermont that works for all of us. I, I don't have a clear answer and I, and that's what I see we're missing is a vision for the next 20 years. And I believe it starts right now. I believe that Vermont is changing. I believe that we can shape it. We can embrace it. And it starts now. Phil Scott has not given a clear vision. When I think of Phil Scott and I think of Vermont, I don't see a clear vision. Um, and, you know, you you are a woman of color in a uh, incredibly white state. Uh, and you have dealt with that since you have arrived here. How do you deal with it? Uh, how, how are we dealing with it? Um, we are in a, we're in a period here of, of, uh, of coming to grips with our past, with, you know, white Americans are coming to grips with our past, uh, our privilege, et cetera, et cetera. You are dealing with this from uh, different angles as well. Uh, and you do this in your professional life. Um, how have you found Vermont as a person of color since you've arrived? I will name, I believe that the United States is in a place of the reckoning of white America. Yeah. And Vermont um, does not escape that, especially being predominantly white. I will say that you mentioned, um, you know, white folks are reckoning it with it now. For folks of color, and I'll speak for myself, for me, this has always been my life of figuring out where do I, where am I, where do I fit in, especially having immigrant parents, and then how do I navigate and make a beautiful life for not only myself, but for my family. In the work that I do, I see a willingness of folks being open. I see the hunger because they're hiring me, the hunger to shift and have these honest conversations and do the work together. And so are we there yet, wherever there is? No. I believe we have a long way to go, and I know we all do. It's a journey that um, all of us are taking. You know, I, 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 I want to follow up on that because I have four kids and I have a daughter who is still under 30. And every once in a while, she she's at the dinner table and she'll say, you know, your generation just always continues to talk about race all the time. And I think that holds us back uh, in our ability to move forward on other issues you know, your generation, dad, is focused on the, the race issues of the 60s and 70s. We need to move ahead on climate and social justice and housing. And if you keep going back and relitigating the past, uh, it makes it harder to deal with the future. I, what, do you, what do you make of that conversation, that, that there's a new generation here, your generation, that is ready to to add a new language to all this. Well, you talk about it as the shift that you want to be a part of. Talk about that. 
Yeah, I would say that I believe it's not about just talking about race and um, honoring what happened in the past, the fight that was had in the past, the fight that we continue to have. I believe it's a part of our everyday lives. I think race and like, I don't think they're separate personally. I don't think they're separate. So being a part of that shift, the way I envision it is creating a space where we can have these conversations and be honest and open about it. And the self-reflection piece, because learning the buzzwords is one thing, doing the internal work is another. Yeah. So Um, I, I, I bring that openness. Okay. Esther, what, um, What's the top issue for you or top one, two, three issues for you in this coming campaign? Yes. Thank you for asking. I, as of right now, I think about climate change. Again, the floods happened over the summer and they will continue to happen. The workforce and housing. Yeah. Um, So, Okay, so on climate change, how do we how do we get there? We've got to reduce our emissions, but it seems to me we also have to, in the c- communities that were most hard hit, especially, uh, we've got to build more resilience into the way we deal with this flooding. As governor, how do you approach that? I would start by looking at what has been done before, what has worked, and what hasn't worked because there are amazing folks in this state who are working hard and doing the work and have data to show what's working and what's not working. So we would start there. And, and as with, you mentioned, with he- the goal is, oops, yes. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The goal is to create communities that are climate resistant. Right. And of course, that that leads into housing. We the legislature yeah. passed a hundred million dollar housing bill uh, last year, and it seems that that is still not enough. I, everything I read says we've got to build forty thousand more units of housing, and it just seems that we just can't build it fast enough. How would you lead that discussion as governor? I would start with understanding the plans that we have now. And I would also see, are we maximizing everything? Do we have enough staff to do the work and get the work done in a timely manner? And connect with different folks around it. I think the beauty is the job you're not doing alone. Folks are already doing the work. It's about implementing and making sure it happens. Um, how do you, uh, running for governor, um, especially against, let's assume that Phil Scott runs for reelection. This is a guy who can easily raise a million dollars to, to fund a reelection campaign. Um, how do you go, how will you go about raising the money that it takes to run a modern campaign for governor? I will start with connecting with different folks in state and out 
to help raise that money. And, and, um, oh, I think we had a glitch there. I, d- I didn't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. I'm all set. Yeah, no. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, and tell us, uh, who, who are the people that you would bring into your administration? Uh, and tell us, who do you admire in public life, either in Vermont or nationally and internationally, that can give us more insight into who you are and how you would lead? I would definitely say Becca Ballard is um, one of my favorite people. I would also say Shirley Chisholm, who is no longer with us, um, is an inspiration to me. And um, her willingness to put herself out there, but also work for folks and doing things unconventionally. I am old enough. Uh, I am old enough to remember the campaign of yes. Shirley Chisholm, the member, the yes. member of Congress from Brooklyn, and um, yes. and I was oh gosh, I don't know. I think I was about twelve years old, and uh, back oh. then we all thought to ourselves, uh, you know, who is this woman? And but uh, boy, as the years have gone on, uh, she's become a hero to so many. Yes. And it it was actually um, Becca who taught me about Shirley Chisholm. I did the program Emerge. I'm class of 2022. And through that training, I learned how to run a campaign and learned of the legacy of Shirley Chisholm because it's not something that we learn about in schools, unfortunately. No, (laughs) that's for sure. Um, And so – you got to raise you got to raise the money. You've got to put together a yep. campaign staff, uh, yep. and you've got to get in your car and drive around the state. Um, and I ask this of all candidates, male and female, uh, or, or or non male or female. How do you do that from a personal standpoint? Whether you have children or no children, or or spouse or no spouse or whatever, it just just to you know, just to survive on a day-to-day basis, you've got to be on the phone, raising the money, getting in the car, giving talks town by town. Uh, how do you look forward to kind of just just making that work? It's just so difficult. And I, I've always been fascinated with how pol- politicians, uh, you know, devote so much time to it and and also have a personal life. How are you going to pull that off? I'll start by saying it takes a village. I'm not alone, which is wonderful. Having a community that will support makes the world of a difference. For me and knowing that this is bigger than me, I think if I didn't have that, that that would make it hard. Knowing that this is bigger. And I am not afraid of the grind and the hard work because that's what I've been doing all my life. So I, I see it as, okay, this is what we need to do to get to the next step and not being afraid of that. So whether it started when I was limited at school, I remember my, one of my teachers telling my mother, I would always be a C student. 
and not letting that define me and putting in the work and the time to not be that. And through college, through work, just always not being afraid of the grind. And so, and the the first uh, sentence in your bio online is that you're a first generation Haitian American. Tell us about your parents. Oh, yes, I would love to. My parents are of Anita and Glasha Chalestan. They have, um, especially my mom, I would say. My mom has been a huge inspiration to me. She is a woman who came to this country, um, found love, married, had five children, and she did anything and all things that she had to do to make sure we had a good life, a better life, a life with opportunity. And she would work 80 hours a week and not complain about it. So much so that I, yeah, I thought it was normal until others brought it to my attention that, wow, your mom's like never home. But she was providing for us. Um, and my great aunt lived with us, Philomen, uh, and took care of us to help. It was the village. And so the value of the village I learned very early on to not be afraid of the hard work and to get it done. And seeing my mom do that daily inspired me and spoke to me in ways that um, that her telling me wouldn't have. Yeah. Okay. Well, and you've also instructed me on how to better pronounce your last name. Charleston, uh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. With the um, American accent, Charleston, but um, yeah. I say it in, with the Haitian accent. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll all get better at uh, pronouncing it uh, after one o'clock today when you announce your campaign, Esther Charleston. Uh, we're grateful yeah. to have you on the show. Uh, best of luck to you in your announcement today, and we'll see you down the road. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Okay, she's announcing uh, her candidacy for governor of Vermont at 1 o'clock today on the Statehouse. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is our show for today. My thanks to our guests, Esther Charleston and Tom Stevens. I'm always looking for guests to provoke us, inform us, and challenge us. So send me your suggestions. Hit me up on Twitter or email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Our goal is to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way. You can stream the show live, listen later as a podcast on WDEVradio.com, anytime, anywhere. And as always, we talk politics, media, culture, and everything else on my mind and yours. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me, KevinKEllis.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter. Follow my podcast, both called Conflict of Interest. Uh, Our show is produced by... Me engineered, made possible by a bunch of folks at WDEV, Brent Curtis, Danny McGivrigan, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, Steve Cormier, and all the folks at WDEV. My thanks also to the team at KWMR Community Radio and Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Wednesday for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond. Wherever you are, join us right here on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV. WDEV.